Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of The Mixtape with Scott. I am your host, Scott Cunningham. This is a podcast where the world of the world of economics, the, the, the field, and the personal stories of economists kind of collide uh, in an interview style. Uh, today, we have a truly special guest uh, with us, none other than uh, the 2021 Nobel Prize in Economics recipient, Dave Card. This interview rounds out uh, my interviews with the 2021 Nobel laureates, and I was absolutely thrilled to have a chance to meet him. I'd never met him, never spoken with him. Um, anybody who's read my book can obviously tell I'm a huge admirer, and he's had a major influence on me, as he has many others. I'm absolutely thrilled to share this remarkable conversation that we had. As many of you know, I am kind of obsessed with Princeton Industrial Relations section in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. It, under Orly Ashenfelter, it just produced a bunch of, bunch of people uh, that really changed the profession. Probably all of us are, are different as a result of it. And Dave is one of those people that really probably helped shape a lot of us. But unlike a lot of the Princeton interviews I've done, uh, we didn't really talk a lot as much about uh, Princeton as we did about things that I think a lot of people are really going to find interesting, the the kind of tumultuous and sometimes contentious debates that uh, happened in the wake of a lot of Dave's most renowned works, namely uh, the minimum wage paper he wrote with Alan Kruger. We really got behind the scene, behind the scenes. Uh, he shared a lot. I asked a lot of questions. He shared a lot with me about uh, about that about that time and about the fighting that actually did happen. And I learned a lot. Um, and we also, I think you're going to learn also a lot about um, even deeper things about the nature of knowledge and where knowledge comes from in economics. If it comes from what is evidence and this theory evidence and all these very, very deep things. Um, we kind of ended up having a conversation about it. Uh, Dave's wonderfully candid throughout the conversation, a lot of insights, a lot of stories, but there's one story that he shares at the very beginning that's breaking news. And I sort of feel like I'm Matt Drudge uh, delivering the exclusive news. I'm, it's, I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to let him tell you, but it's hot off the press. But just wanted to say, uh, remember... The Mixtape with Scott is more than just the technicalities and theories of economics. It's about connecting those concepts, the oral history of economics itself, with the personal narrative, personal narratives of actual living economists. It's about understanding how these, un, these sort of work together, shape our professional life, and shape our personal life. And then, of course, I'm going to say stories are important. Uh, people's stories are important. Dave Card's story, his personal story is important. And your, your story is important. Stories help us make sense of the world. They guide us, they inspire us, and on occasion, they caution us. Um, they weave together to form complex quilt of our lives. And I think for many of you listening, economics is our home. Uh, and being an economist is a, a lot about our identity. So my hope is that through this pod, good or bad, to be honest, and my hope is that through this podcast, you find a thread that really touches you, really resonates with your own experiences, provides a fresh perspective on navigating the course of this life. Um, so anyway, so we embark on this journey. Um, we're not just in 
exploring the story of economics. This is the personal story, or at least a little bit, of, little bit of it, of a living economist, David Card. I hope you enjoy hearing his story uh, as much as I have enjoyed uh, hearing it too. So let's get started. Well, it is uh, my honor, uh, my pleasure to have uh, on the podcast um, uh, Dr. David Card, winner of the 2021 Nobel Prize in Economics. Uh, Dr. Card, Dave, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Well, before we get started, uh, could you tell me, everybody, your name, your job title, and the, the name of the firm that signs your paycheck? Uh, I'm a professor of economics. My name is David Card, and I'm um, employed at the University of California, Berkeley uh, right. for one more week, and then I'm going emeritus. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, I get to announce it. I get to break the breaking news. Break the news. Yeah. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put a spoiler alert up the, on the thing. Okay. Well, um, before we get started even more, I was wanting to do an icebreaker. So what's a vacation or a trip that you went on in, you know, the last 20 years or so that to this day you still think about? Um, So um, in 2003, I, um, my father was a, a farmer um, and he was um, always very interested in um, visiting Nebraska. Hmm. And the reason why is because all tractors sold in the United States are tested in Nebraska, at the Nebraska University of Nebraska test grounds. And um, so he wanted to visit the test grounds and see where this was done uh, for historical reasons. So anyway, um, I had um, bought a pickup truck that I was going to uh, give to him. And so I bought a used pickup truck in uh, California and we drove all the way to Canada. But we stopped in uh, various places along the way. That was the first time he'd driven across the U.S., Mm. And uh, we stopped in Nebraska. We stopped at the uh, John Deere factory in Iowa and we went on a tour. He was a John Deere, true, true believer in John Deere tractors. Yeah. And then we visited uh, a couple of other sites along the way. So it was a lot of fun. We had a long, lot of time to talk. Where'd you start and, and how, how long, where'd you start? And, and you ended in Nebraska? Santa Rosa, California, where, where uh, I am right now, actually. Yeah. Wow. I bet that's uh, quite a drive. It's a nice drive, yeah. Yeah, yeah. America. You know, it's a great country to see uh, in a in a big pickup truck. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. uh, it's one of the best things about America. Those 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 road trips. We have a pretty country. Um, okay, well, so that's my that actually is a great segue into my first question. So I read that your father, your parents were dairy farmers. Um, I was just wondering, what were your days and nights like when you were a kid? What kind of games and stuff did you enjoy doing? Uh, I, I probably like, um, I was a child of the fifties, uh, you know, born in 1956. And so uh, in the early sixties, um, we had a TV, we didn't, we weren't allowed to watch it too much. We watched it a couple hours uh, a day. Um, we, uh, I always hung out with my brother who was two years younger than me. And we spent a lot of time just, um, fiddling around on the farm. Um, growing up on a farm is a great uh, thing for a kid because you get to just hang out and do whatever you're doing. And um, we, you know, built forts in the Haymow and um, went wandering in the 
deals and stuff. And there were a few neighborhood kids that we, we played with a lot. Yeah. Uh, we had, uh, my mother had a great big garden. So we had, um, quite an extensive, um, network of roads and stuff for our trucks. Oh uh, yeah. So we, had, we, had, <laughs> we had a good time. <laughs> that, I bet that was wonderful. I bet that was great. And so you ended up going, so, so when you were in high school, what sort of stuff did you like doing outside of school? Um, I was, um, uh, we, I had some good friends in the neighborhood. And so we kind of had, a, we, do, we hung out a lot, um, you know, d doing illegal stuff like drinking beer and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, then I kind of got involved indirectly in student politics. I became the president of the students council at my high school, which is a pretty big high school. I had like 2,400 kids. Wow. Um, so I was kind of actively involved in that. Um, I never played any sports. I'm, I'm completely hopeless on sports. What was your greatest accomplishment as president of the high school? Uh, well, we had two major, uh, breakthroughs, three, actually. Um, the first two were, um, women were not allowed to wear uh, pants. Uh -huh. Um, this is like 1970, I'm guessing like 1975 or so. And, um, uh, no, 1973. And uh, so we managed to convince the administration to let women wear pants to school. Yeah. That was a major breakthrough. Um, then we got um, smoking on school grounds. You got, um, it. you got it passed that you could smoke? Yeah, we could, you, could be, you could smoke on school grounds. That, that was a big breakthrough. I mean, it turned out that was probably a bad idea. But <laughs> at the time, it seemed like a major breakthrough. <laughs> it's a check. And then the, the major thing I did that had a long run impact, uh, probably, I mean, Pants were probably going to come anyway, and smoking didn't last that long. But um, we took over the student cafeteria. The student council took over the running of the student cafeteria and became a source of income for the student council for for years oh. afterwards. My brother taught at that high school for many years afterwards, and it was all they were always very wealthy because they got all the income from the student council. Oh, that's that's cool! Wow, that's really cool. So, how did that whole experience? How do you think that it was? So, after that experience, what kind of what kind of uh, um, how did you sort of see what kind of life you were wanting to have at the end of high school? Um, I didn't really think of it too much. I, um, I didn't really know anything about economics when I went to college and I actually was a science program originally. Um, and, um, I, I was kind of pretty sure I didn't want to be a farmer. Uh, and, you know, at that time, in the neighborhood they were all pretty small farms you know 100 or 200 300 acres kind of farms yeah nowadays there's almost no farms left they're, they're all great big huge and so they're all consolidated so very few of my friends from that time remained in the farming business yeah but um uh, i wasn't sure what i wanted to do and eventually kind of came on to economics and that was a good fit for me that was in college you you stumbled yeah. on in college like sort of a couple years in yeah, yeah, actually, at <laughs> the uh, beginning of my third year in college, I uh, I was taking, I was signed up in the physics program, and um, uh, and my girlfriend at the time was uh, taking intro economics using a textbook, um, Lipsy and Sparks and Steiner, so that was a, mm. Richard Lipsy was a professor at Berk, at Princeton, and at Queens, excuse me, where I was mm. an undergrad. And he was, he had written this famous textbook that was widely used in England. Mm. Uh, and uh, he was a very good instructor. But anyway, this textbook, it was a bit more advanced than textbooks today. 
that's something that's happened in economics. I don't know if people are aware of it, but the, I would say the classes have dumbed down a little bit. Hmm. So Lipsy's textbook is quite good. It has elasticity formulas. Oh. And my girlfriend at the time was having a hard time with that. She wasn't too great on the, you know, that kind of math. And um, so she asked me to give her a hand and I started reading the book. And I thought, boy, this is really interesting. <laughs> uh and by the, I basically read two thirds of the book. Um, if you grew up on a farm and no one's ever explained like how demand and supply curves work, it's actually quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Did that, when you were reading it, did it, did it sort of all make sense of what your parents' sort of job was like or something? Well, one thing it explains is for agricultural products, the elasticity of demand is less than one almost for sure. And so you can have a paradox that um, it's a poor year for crops, but everybody's better off. Ah, right. So that's helpful. You um, noticed you noticed that as a kid, your parents. Uh, it was kind of known that that was a problem, like in the Canadian wheat business. For uh -huh. Yeah, you could have a you know a very good crop isn't necessarily good. Right, 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 right. Huh, that's interesting. So you were so then you read that you you saw that there was like a there might be a rational reason for that. Yeah, I mean, it turns out that probably that's the one place where you know simple demand and supply things work pretty well as agricultural markets. Right. You know, like my field, it's probably a bit, a bit more uh, dodgy, but um, right. I didn't didn't quite realize that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a textbook. So it was a textbook, and that's what sort of started to. Yeah. So then I, si I I signed up for a class uh, in my third third year. I was kind of pretty far behind. Yeah. Um, I was good shape because I'd taken quite a few math classes, um, mm -hmm. but I was far behind in terms of um, economics. So. As a result, I could only take um, my first year in economics was really my third year, and I was way behind. Mm. So I took a first semester, I took an um, intro class, and that was going okay. So the second semester, I, I said, well, I should maybe take a couple of econ classes, but I didn't have any prerequisites. Because mm. at that time, you needed to have second year classes to get into most of the yeah. topic classes. And the only two classes I could take were... Um, both were taught by um, relatively recent PhD students um, who graduated from Princeton, both of them, with uh, Orly Eschenfelter as their advisor. Oh. One was Charles Beach and one was uh, Michael Abbott. And they were teaching income distribution, that was Charlie's class, and um, labor economics, that was Mike's class. And so I took huh. those two classes. Wow. Huh. So I'm guessing this is where Princeton and Orly starts to become things you're aware of. Yeah. I, but basically, the first year I was an economist, I thought that he must be the king of all economics. <laughs> <laughs> how quickly do you, how, is there, a, is there a gap between college and going to grad school or do you go straight to grad school? Yeah, back then people pretty much went straight. You went yeah, straight was, in. Mm -hmm. And was it Princeton the only place you were sort of had your eyes on? Um, I got into Harvard. I didn't get into MIT. Um, and I, I but at that time, I mean, these two guys, uh, Mike and Charlie, and uh, there were some other faculty at um, Queens that had PhDs from um, Princeton. One who's still there actually is Jim McKinnon, James McKinnon, the uh, oh, yeah. Jim McKinnon guy, or uh, McKinnon and Davidson. And Russell Davidson was uh, also there. Yeah. Um, so I took classes from those dudes. Huh. And uh, they all thought that uh, the Princeton program was far better, it was more rigorous. Um, and it was at that time way more rigorous than the Harvard program. Huh. That was so, that was a widely kind of, was that a minority opinion or was that like Princeton people thought that or did, was that even something, 
even outside of Princeton, people kind of had that feeling? I think at that time, everyone thought of MIT as the most rigorous or whatever, the most, um, you know, because Bob Solo was still very active advising people. And um, yeah, that that was, it turned out that that was, you know, many of the other ASPROFs that were hired at the same time as me were educated there. But um, yeah. Uh, I don't think Harvard was a major, as, as big a player as they turned out to be much later. Or well, they certainly weren't, actually. When they said rigorous, when you were going into grad school, what did they mean by it then? Was it the same, did it mean the same thing then as it means now? It it certainly did. Um, the first year grad program, Micro, was taught by a famous professor, Hugo Sonnenschein. Uh-huh. And um, it was... Uh, we worked through very, very detailed proofs someplace in between um, Malinvaux and uh, Gerard de Bro's book. Oh. Um, very, very intensive. And um, uh, it, it was, um, I probably at the time, one of the most rigorous, you know, micro, micro courses in the field. Yeah. And many of the game theorists of the, of the subsequent game theorists from that generation uh, graduated from Princeton. So after I came back on the faculty, I taught with Hugo. I taught that class. So he kind of split it with me and I taught sort of a bit more applied orientation, the first mm. kind of um, consumer demand and producer theory stuff, um, but still a pretty high level, you know, yeah. continuity of demand functions. Right. I can right. still give that proof off the top of my head probably. <laughs> um, but, um, so we had many great students, Dilla Pabru. I mm. taught micro theory to Dilla Pabru, David Pierce, um, mm. Inku Cho, um, uh, quite a few of the really prominent people of that generation. Well, it's funny the way you're talking, uh, cause I was going to ask you, you know, it seems like you could have been one of these labor economists like Gary Becker, who specializes in primarily theoretical work. And I definitely, even the way you're talking now, it sounds like that's, that's, that could have been a choice you made, but you, you seem to have specialized in being an empiricist really early. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Yeah. I mean, I, I, that was the Princeton tradition in labor economics. Oh. So, I mean, people knew how to do consumer theory and so on. I, I don't know, most people maybe don't know, but um, Orly has a pretty nice paper in Econometric, it won the Frisch Prize actually, and it's on how to model um, unemployment as a rationing. Oh. So you, you know, it's still, still somewhat controversial, although maybe less so now, because no one's thought about it for a long time. But at that time, this was just, you know, 70s. It was the era when, people started to want to model unemployment as completely voluntary. Ah. Heavily influenced by Lucas and Rapping and their re revisionist history of the Great Depression. Yeah. Uh, but Orly's view was that, you know, you were signed up with an employer and then you had a certain number of hours you could work and the rest of the time you didn't. And so you'd have to think about how that affected your um, consumer demand functions. Hmm. It's, it's a nice framework, but it hasn't really been followed up very much in the field. Hmm. But at the time it was recognized. And so, you know, it's got like... A pretty nice use of expenditure functions uh, to to sort of solve some of the problems with the yeah with, um, setup. Well, so when did you feel like you knew 
that you wanted to be a labor economist? Was that something that you sort of oh, pretty much right away uh, as soon as I went to grad school? Yeah, actually, I I um I kind of went to grad school knowing that that was probably the field I was interested in. How come? What was it about it? Well, because of those courses, I uh, did my senior thesis on um, strike activity and mm. um I uh, I I had a lot of uh, jobs because my father's farm was pretty small there wasn't you know there wasn't really enough jobs for keeping me busy on the farm so I had all kinds of jobs I worked in um, research farm I worked uh, in a steel factory for a couple of years oh. Got a, that was probably hourly rate that might have been the best job I've ever had yeah you, the... um, it was a unionized steel plant and it was an incentive pay so oh. I, I uh, was able to one of the few people that could tolerate working with one of the guys that just regularly earned we earned like three times the standard base rate. Oh, wait. So in incentive pay, so you're getting paid by what you're pulling out of the ground? Yeah, by, by oh. how many pieces. We, it was making steel culverts. Oh. Big steel culverts. Does that persist as a, as a uh, what they do in those, in that industry or does it change? Um, well, the steel industry always had very extensive use of incentive pay. Huh. Um, steel industry was... Uh, organized by the mine workers. Uh, I guess people don't know that, but back in my time, everybody knew that. There was a steel workers organizing committee that was organized by the, by the mine union. The miners union was a much more old fashioned, you know, much more powerful union in the, in the, at that time. Yeah. And uh, so miners are always paid by incentive basis because, you know, you you get paid how many tons of coal you pull out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I guess it might have been that. It might have been there's so many different tasks um, and people have some autonomy with these big machines and they want to keep the machines operating. Mm, mm. I don't know exactly. That's a good question. Yeah. Well, so how did you get drawn to the section, to the industrial relations section? When you um, that, at that time, you kind of came to, when you came to Princeton as a PhD student, if you were, if they, if they kind of knew you were interested in labor economics, they would kind of give you a like a, a little sub office on the it was in the, the IR section was in the library the main library of campus uh-huh the reason why it was called the IR section because it was that section of the library oh okay good That's there was another group called the international finance section it's it's also quite an important group at at Berkeley that's um at Princeton I mean that's the the group that does um international trade oh I see I see but so the Irish section, I think really from my first year, I was given a carol in the office that was beside the IR section. And then um, I got some part-time, you know, some jobs my first year doing some coding. Yeah. What was it like? Do you remember your first time that you met Orly? Uh, <laughs> I do remember one thing. Um, so I, it was about March of 1978. That was the year I graduated from college and I'd applied to PhD programs and um, I was sitting at home with phone rang. I think it might've been on a Saturday, but uh, you know, 10, 10, 30 or 11 AM. And it was, it turned out it was Orly on the phone. Now the remarkable thing about Orly is that he has exactly the same voice and, and accent as my, this other guy that I knew my advisor, Michael Abbott, Michael was one of his students, but it, it, it's like a remarkable thing that they have the same voice. Because mm -hmm. they have, both have very unique voices. Uh -huh. Anyway, so I thought it was Michael playing a joke on me. But it turned out it was Orly. And so he, you know, was talking to me, trying to talk me into going to Princeton. But it, it, 
I, you know, he did, he did a good job and, but I was, you know, pretty easy to convince. Yeah, sure. 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 Well, so what was your first impression working with him? Working with him. Um, or just even, you know, having him as a professor or just being around. Uh, him. Well, he was kind of a, you know, he was very engaged uh, with, um, at that time, engaged with them, um, advising um, all the PhD students. So he was really a one-man show, the IR yeah. session. It was him yeah. most of the time. And so he would um, come in a little late um, and uh, he went swimming. He used to swim every day ah. uh, for an hour or so. And then he came back after swimming and smoked a giant cigar. <laughs> giant um like havana type cigar yeah the whole so the whole IR section smelled like cigar smoke <laughs> it, it's kind of, people can't really imagine the, how much smoking there used to be in academia <laughs> even in the high school I once saw Bob Lucas. yeah i once saw bob lucas give a talk and I'm, i swear he smoked a whole package of cigarettes in that seminar <laughs> it's like, man, it was just one after the other it was awesome that's awesome um, anyway so he, he and then he you know people would chat with him for a while and, he, and he'd talk on the phone to his co-author so at that time you know if you were working with somebody who wasn't there you had to do it on the phone yeah um yeah. so yeah it was it was and i met like joel tanji was a year ahead of me and joe was already working with him one of my first jobs was helping joe and orley were working on a paper um trying to test the time series properties of um, wage movements and i um at that time people didn't it just discovered the idea of the unit root test uh-huh that, that when you if you run a regression of yt on yt minus one and it's truly a unit root um it's not going to be centered at one it's going to be centered below one and so you need to adjust the confidence interval ah. and I, I i might be the first labor economist to ever coded up the dickie fuller test uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's great uh you know you have this i, I know that you have this amazing speech you gave uh, in 2012 at Michigan on this design versus model based. And I, I kind of want to segue a little bit, but oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the, the sense I get from little bitty things that you've said, and I guess that the quotes that you pulled out from other people, it sounded like in the seventies, there was like a bit of an empirical crisis. And oh, for sure. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit, were you aware of it at the time, or is that something that you, looking back, sort of have said? Oh no, it was it was very clear. Um, I, there's many elements of it. I guess I could, if, if we got time, I guess I can, can give a bit, bit of an overview of this. Um, so when you were studying papers for, you know, at that time there weren't nearly as many papers. So if you were doing a, a grad labor class, you might count on trying to study 20 papers for the whole course oh, huh. um, but you go in depth it was a very right. different way of doing things than a lot of people do these days i still prefer that way but so you go through the paper in great detail yeah or you get the students to present it in depth and that was actually orley's method hmm. but it was pretty obvious that the empirical results were not the main thing it was all mostly the methods and a lot of times people didn't even really worry too much about the empirical results and Huh. So in the, in that in the labor economics class, 1980, I guess, or fall of fall of 79, maybe, um, I was taking this class, and I presented Tom Sargent's paper on dynamic labor demand, which is a you know at that time was a pretty much important very important paper. It's about how to interpret um, aggregate labor demand in, in a, with 
wages and employment of, in the aggregate economy. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out, if you read that, which I, I know that paper extremely well, but I'm probably one of the few people that still does. I'm sure Tom does. Um, <laughs> it turns out that it's not identified. He shows the picture of the likelihood and it's flat. Mm. So, the, you know, there's a kind of a mul- multiplicity because, we're, you know, he's just using time series data and there's like multiple routes to this question, to this solution. And it, um, but no one worried about that because that wasn't <laughs> important. What was important was how to solve the rational expectations problem and get it into the, you know, the forward uh, expectations of wages, get that into the way uh, employers demand equation. Yeah, right. Um, but that was that was very common. And how did that feel for you? What did that feel like? I mean, I, that- I didn't really think of it too much, but it, it was empirical work wasn't really what economists were supposed to, you know, that wasn't so much important. Now there was kind of an exception and that was when it came to like um, really directly policy evaluation kind of stuff. And so like Ashenfelder had done um, a couple of things in the, before that my time there and um, trying to study the effect of government training programs. Yeah. And they were, the results in those program evaluations were all over the map. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he, um, Subsequent to after grad school, he got um we got called. There was a big evaluation that was underway by um, SRI International, which was the research operation. Actually, they implemented the Seattle Denver Income Maintenance Experiment, but they were doing a an evaluation of the training programs under President Carter, mm. uh, and called CETA. Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, I guess it was called. So they were doing a CETA evaluation and they were trying to compare different methodologies. And one methodology was sort of a Malhanobis matching method. Mm-hmm. This was before people knew about propensity score matching, but they knew about Malhanobis matching. Mm. And then another was kind of regression models and, and so on. And, and it was, the results were all over the map, uh, depending on how you did the map, the matching or how you did the regression and who you chose as a comparison group. And that was very, very common. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was kind of frustrating because you could implement pretty state-of-the-art type of methods. So in the course of doing that, I, Orly and I wrote a paper where we basically implemented a pretty um, advanced for that time uh, method of moments estimator that essentially we were trying to deal with the fact that the people going into training programs don't have, you don't have parallel trends with, with the treatment group and the control group, the, the treatment group has kind of had a dip beforehand. Yeah. So we had a selection adjusted parallel trends kind of difference of differences estimator. Mm-hmm. Oh. If you know that there's a selection based on earnings in a certain period, you know, you're going to kind of, if the earnings are serially correlated, you know, you're going to go down and then come back up. Right. Right. And that idea had been actually recognized um, by Jim Heckman mm. a few years before. And so, but I coded all this the whole thing up and that was in our restud paper. Yeah, but what we found even with that was that we could get different answers depending on whether we assumed that people who went into training in 1976, for example, mm-hmm. had had the earnings decrease was the you know the, the the pivotal event was the earnings that they would have gotten in 1976, or it was the earnings they actually got in 1975. Mm-hmm. It kind of fit about the same, but they had different implications for what the training program mm-hmm. impact was. And so we sort of said, you know, you can't really easily solve this problem. How come you're responding differently to that than say that temp, that sergeant thing where it's kind of like you were saying the sergeant paper, it's sort of illustrating the method, but it sounds like this is different. 
Well, I think fundamentally, you know, that's the subject thing is macro. Yeah. And I don't know. It, 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 my impression was that no one ever thought that there was really a scientific answer to anything in macro. Oh, okay. But in labor, but in labor, yeah. I, but, I, I um, have this interpretation. I was just wondering, you know, how much of this is being driven by rising, you know, uh, poverty and large government programs and, uh, you know, recessionary shocks and, and uh, inequality. I mean, how much of these kinds of like the, the, the gravity of getting answers right are in direct response to just the, the economic moment that you were in the 70s? Is, is it something else or? I mean, that might've been part of it. It was also the case that um, I think it was understood that um, if somebody had credible evidence that these training programs did or didn't work, that could actually matter. Right. So in other words, there was kind of an indication that evidence might matter for the policy. Mm. And it, it's, you know, it's much less direct in a lot of other types of economics. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, yeah, that, that's actually an interesting question why that particular area was a little bit different. But um, I'll give a couple of other examples of, of what I mean by the crisis. So around that time, just a few years after that, um, Ed Lehmer's book comes out that the, and his famous article, Let's Take the Con Out of Econometrics. Yeah. Uh, around the same time, David Hendry, who's still an active econometrician in the UK, um, had written a, I guess it was his inaugural lecture as a professor at LSE. It was called um, Econometrics and Alchemy or something like that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it was sort of basically saying, it was all, it was based on time series stuff and saying like, there's, there's too many um, loose ends in the way people do things and it gives too much discretion to the researcher. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh. Um, then, um, another thing that was pretty important, um, there was one really strong tradition in economic, labor economics where everybody took everything seriously. And that was, um, in the estimation of union wage effects. Oh. And it, probably that was because of H. Greg Lewis. Oh. So he was the, the primary labor economist at the University of Chicago all through the fifties and sixties. He eventually retired and moved to Duke and spent the last years because Chicago had mandatory retirement. But, um, and he had trained this previous generations of, of labor comms. He was the advisor to Gary Becker and to Sherwin Rosen and many, many, many others. Um, and he's sort of the guy who indirectly discovered the selection bias correction. He's got a paper on selection bias that kind of comes about before Jim Heckman's stuff. Hmm. He didn't have the exact formula, but he understood that. And he was extremely serious about Empiricor. He had been um, Paul Douglas's research assistant. Oh. So he was a very strong uh, empiricist. There was a kind of a joke that, at the IR section. You know, somebody presented a result and somebody would say, well, does it pass a Lewis test? <laughs> and the Lewis test was that Greg Lewis would think you actually made sense what you just said. <laughs> 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 was and it he hard? Was to... A scary guy because he was, you know, uh, pretty senior and pretty uh, formal. Yeah, uh, I had a job working for him at, at the IR section. He was visiting the IR section when I was. A... Oh, I'm having a memory now. You say in that speech that he does a review of all the union 
papers and just almost drops all the IV ones. He just dropped all the IV and selection corrections, said they're not credible. He said they're not credible. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. that's kind of like the godfather of the field saying, you know, all this work that you guys have been doing, maybe the methodology is interesting, but it's not oh, really no. getting us anything that we should really pay attention to. Yeah. So that's, in, so you're, you, you, you feel that way as a grad student. I know you obviously feel that way eventually, but like, even as a grad student, you were like, I, I'm kind of like that also. Not sure. Uh, I mean, I think I, I don't, I, I don't, I've never understood why anybody would. Well, here's a good example. I've never understood why anybody would fake their data. Yeah. Because I don't, I, I mean, I don't understand why you would think that, I guess it's because you're going to get the paper published, but fundamentally you would know that the, that it wasn't what you said it was. Right. So I, it doesn't really make any sense to me that you would do that because yeah. you would be, um, you know, you wouldn't have figured it out. And so I think spent Lewis a lot is, of time. You spent a yeah, lot. Yeah, and, and I think Lewis was like that. He's like he wanted to actually know, <laughs> right? right. And in a way, he didn't really care if other people didn't have that obsessive yeah. interest in it. I think that's a very helpful perspective on it. Yeah, yeah. That um, a lot of things that you know, economists or other academics or researchers can do, there might not be a huge audience for it, but it's still important to get it right. Yeah. Um, and so I think I've always thought it was more like you're trying to get it right and really know for sure whether what you say, what, whether this hypothesis or idea that you have is correct. Well, so at Princeton, you know, when you, I think about Bob Lalone's job market paper, the, the, the thing that strikes me is this um, kind of a falsification ingenuity kind of thing. It's not just uh, trying to answer in a question. It was just this almost like I'm going to expose how bad things are. Was that how that, is that our well, I think view of it? That puts it in a slightly negative light or, um, uh, you know, Bob wasn't like that. Uh -huh. um, he was a very positive guy. Mm. So you could put it in that light, but I don't, and I don't think that was really the light that we, you know, he was the first student I worked on and worked with closely as a PhD student. Um, mm. So he was only a couple of years behind me in grad school. And then I came back to Princeton on the faculty and I spent many, many hours with him mm. talking over what they were, what he was doing and how it all fit together. Yeah. It was more like, what well, the idea was, can we provide some guidance or can his work provide some guidance as to what's working and what's not? Right, right. It wasn't like to make fun of the people who got it wrong. It was really more to say, this method looks like, or this way of of selecting a good method. Yeah. Like what what could you do to find out that your method was actually doing okay? Oh. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, people knew about over identification tests, and that was a sort of an important idea, but it, it was sort of understood that those weren't decisive. You know. Yeah. 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 Uh, partially because our models are never good enough to pass over identification tests. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so when does Dr. Kruger get to Princeton? I'm curious about y'all's first time to meet and sort of what he was like early on as a colleague. Oh, I have quite a few good stories about that. Um, so I was on, I, I was an ASP prof at Princeton and um, uh, we were kind of low on people. There had been a, another guy who was an assistant professor, but he didn't get tenure. Jim Brown, his name was James Brown. Um, mm -hmm. And so Jim moved on to, he went on to um, SUNY um, Stony Brook. Uh -huh. And um, 
so we were kind of looking for somebody to hire and um uh i think we tried and labor economics was they're starting to get a little more interest in labor economics at harvard or at stony brook uh just in the profession maybe. oh in the profession it was yeah kind of i mean emerging. i had gone to chicago and come back um, yeah and the reason why I, you know the reason why they hired me was because the year i was away orly got an offer from mit oh and uh so mit was going to actually hire a labor economist that was a major thing right that that's sort of like oh my god oh so that um, was there there hadn't really been well they had they had hired hank farber the year before he was one of early students but they thought they needed a more senior guy to so they had some, they, they were making some moves they were trying to they're making some moves yeah. yeah and um so we we looked at a couple of people and and they turned us down the most most prominent one that turned us down to i remember was larry katz oh he turned you down Yes, yeah, so Larry had come out of MIT and gone directly back to Berkeley, where he was an undergrad. Oh. Uh, and I think, you know, 80s in Berkeley wasn't the greatest time. The resources were thin and oh. people didn't. It, it was pretty insular. And so I think it, it was, you know, he liked it there. and He liked George Akerlof and Janet Yellen, but he he felt a little bit lonely. And, and so then he he went back on the job market after a year or two. Yeah. And so we tried to hire him and he went to Harvard. Um, and anyway, mm -hmm. so then along comes Alan a couple of years later in a cohort, um, and he was um, not on the list to be interviewed at, uh, by Princeton at the meetings, but he had the good fortune. He was from New Jersey, yeah, upstate New Jersey, and he he had the good fortune to sit beside Jenna Ashenfelter, Orly's wife, mm -hmm. on the way. And so she was a very, um, she was a very social person, and she knew a lot about economics because he'd been listening to it for years yeah and so she started talking to him and was extremely impressed by him yeah. and so after the flight was over i forget what city the the meetings were it might have been new orleans or someplace like that yeah she went and got orly and said orly you, you have to interview this guy <laughs> <laughs> so orly got disrupted everything and got an alan on you know this is not kind of thing that's not allowed anymore right 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 it's, it's, com yeah, you know, it's, like, it's com yeah completely yeah. against all these rigorous rules we have about Right. protocols and stuff but it was an extremely lucky move because um harvard had many people on the job market that year john bound and alan and david newmark and mm. i think we might have been interviewing the other two but not alan mm -hmm. i don't really know why but um but anyway alan came out and and um uh you know he was obviously he had this paper, it wasn't his job market paper, but he had this paper with Larry Summers on efficiency wage differences. And um, it, there's, a, there's a really remarkable thing about that paper, which probably no one really knows about anymore, but that was the first paper I ever saw where they took the coefficient estimates and applied a shrinkage estimator. Hmm. So they basically said, okay, these, these coefficients are attenuated. We got to kind of adjust for that. And they, you know, very obvious. And it was pretty clear that Alan knew how to do all that. And he'd taken a couple of stats class at, classes at Cornell. Uh -huh. um, and, and they had a, you know, old-fashioned statisticians that were training people a little bit differently than econometricians. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Orly and I thought, well, you know, we should try and push for him. And he, so he got hired. What impressed you about him? What, like, if you know, if, if not knowing anything, pretend I don't know. Well, that was pretty impressive, I thought. You know, it was kind of wide-ranging. Um he was very interested in, at that time in testing efficiency wage models. And, yeah. you know, he had, he had a paper 
turns out to have been a result that holds up actually, which was the fast food restaurants that are um, managed directly by the company pay a higher wage premium to the manager than ones that are owned by franchising. And the argument Alan made was the franchise guy has more control and spends more time in the store. So he does, he can monitor the employer, the, the managers more directly. Uh, what? So you guys end up working on this minimum wage paper that also is about fast food. So, I mean, is this, there's like, is there something natural about the two of you kind of coming together on this project? Just given what you just said. Um, well, actually that, um, the, the, the way that evolved was slightly differently. Um, so at the end of the eighties, there started to be some state specific minimum wages above the federal level for the first time in a long time. Uh-huh. So um, California had a one and then, um, and so uh, people started to look at that and um, Alan had written, a, was interested in fast food stuff. And so he and Larry Katz did a survey of um, what happened in Texas when they raised the minimum wage to uh -huh. a bunch of fast food restaurants. So it was, but it was the federal increase, but he had fast food restaurants in, in Texas. Uh -huh. and they didn't really have a control group. Right. But it was, it was, you know, there was some interesting stuff about the study. Um, I had done a, a more of a classic difference of differences thing, looking at the effects of California raising its minimum wage uh, with using comparing other states. And then at this, in this, there was this conference that was held. Um, Princeton and Cornell used to have an annual conference. It was Cornell Princeton Conference. We were the kind of were the two bastions of old-fashioned labor economics, or you know, uh -huh. somewhat institutionally based labor economics, I should say. And so we'd all get in a van and go to Cornell because they had a nice site uh, to have the conference. And each year there was one of the two institutions would pay for it. It wasn't a huge group, but anyway, so one of these conferences was um, on the minimum wage. That was the topic. Uh -huh. And uh, so I presented my California paper, Alan and Larry presented their paper. Um, I think guess Newmark and Washer presented a paper maybe. What'd you uh, find in your California paper? That was a diff and diff paper too? Yeah. Um, you know, wages went up, no loss of employment. Okay. Um, and after we're after the conference, but in time to get the paper in the conference volume, I, I did another paper where I realized that if you raise the federal minimum and some states already have passed a minimum wage, then you kind of have the, what now is called the gap design. Mm. So some states are basically treat, treated and partially oh. treated and are not treated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um so I, I basically did that paper, which also showed, you know, wages go up as you, you know, as you'd expect, but there's no big loss of no loss of employment. Yeah. So anyway, that was kind of done, and the results were there, but they but they came out in the ILR review, which is a you know a labor insider paper journal. No one's going to read that, and hmm. you know, in the big schools these days. Mm -hmm. Um. And then uh, Alan and I were, had offices next to each other. And we were we were collaborating on a, a project on school quality. Um, but the minimum wage thing, we, I can't remember whether Alan or one of us read about this. You know that there was New Jersey had sort of passed a minimum wage increase, and it was there was some concern because it was going to the state legislature was trying to overturn it. It was a Democrat governor. It had been proposed by a Democrat legislature, and then the legislature turned over to the opposite side, and they were trying to block it, but they, 
the governor eventually managed to override it. So the law turned into effect. But it was just when the law was, it was supposed to occur in April. And so we said, oh, maybe we should try and do an evaluation. And we, we thought very carefully about the, you know, the things we'd learned from these other studies, like uh, we need to have a really good control group. We need to really be able to follow all the stores. So we need to make sure we don't have any attrition. Mm. And so we put a fair amount of effort into it. Um, mm. But we were kind of in a hurry. So when, you know, there was a downside of it of being at that hurry, we didn't do the greatest job of drawing the sample. So the sample mm. is a little bit, um, you know, we didn't get, uh, the way we had to do the sample because we couldn't think of any other way to do it in the short time we had, we just got the phone books. Oh. Princeton Library had a huge collection of phone books for Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And we just lined them all up and said, okay, here's the counties, here's the phone books to see what, find the stores. Yeah. So that's and the guy who was a research right? assistant that you I hired start, to, is to it do you're the phone starting book that? work. Are you, are you starting that? Because I know it's February is the baseline. So are you starting this project in the January. fall? In January. Oh. Yeah, we were really up against the Because you know it's going into effect in April. Supposedly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the guy who hired to, um, he was a senior at uh, Princeton and I was advising his senior thesis and, and he helped me. You know, he, you know, sat and coded all these things and put them in a spreadsheet so we'd have the phone numbers and addresses of the stores. Yeah. And, um, and we started talking about how to get a surveyor, you know, because we didn't want to do the whole thing ourselves. And he said, well, my grandmother's a surveyor. And I said, oh, that's kind of interesting. And um, so it turned out she was a professional surveyor and lived in Utah, oh. uh, where there's a, at that time, there were a lot of the survey companies were basically hiring underemployed women, mm. uh, you know, cause a lot of them were, it was a more traditional Mormon thing and oh. a lot of women would go back to work, but they, you know, they wanted to be pretty flexible and stuff. Anyway, so her name was Susan Belden. And um, so I, I called her up and I, to tell you the truth, I couldn't believe she sounded like she was about 16. Mm. It was great on the phone. And she, Alan and I had done a few uh, testing out our survey, calling fast food restaurants. We got nowhere. You know, like the managers blew us off. Mm. She got like a 88 or 89% response rate. She she could get people to answer the phone that you could not imagine how. I, I, I don't know how she did it. She was just very persuasive and sort of soft-spoken. And, and she sounded like a, you know, a, a young woman. Yeah. And I think that all of these things helped a little bit. But yeah. um, so anyway, she, that was a huge success huge benefit to have her because we got such good response rates so uh why why the response to this paper well so orly said something interesting i guess like you know there's so much folklore around the paper and i was surprised when orly said something because you know you read that that uh wall street journal op-ed by james buchanan and i think oh this must have been the most controversial paper written in the history of economics but then but then when I listened to you in that 2012 Michigan speech talking about the empirical crisis in labor, and then you telling me not everybody took the methods or they took the methods seriously, but they didn't really take the empirical work seriously. So why then does this paper strike a chord? Why didn't people just be like dismissive the way they were like with these other things? Because clearly that didn't happen. Yeah. Well, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, well, first of all, 
you know, the minimum wage it used to play a very pivotal role in um, you know, very, you know, everybody would learn about this in the first year of economics. And it was one of the things, you know, economists love to do this. I don't know whether everybody's aware of this, but economists love to say, well, um, there's many things that the average person or the populist voter or something will ad agitate for, and it'll turn out to be counterproductive. Mm -hmm. And that's what economics, so economists love it when somebody, when they, somebody analyzes something and shows that the intention of this law was X, but actually it causes minus X. Yeah, 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 right. And so the minimum wage was supposed to, and rent control were supposed to be the two big examples of that. Sure. And it, and it kind of gets at, that it gets at the idea that price regulation is bad which is right. you know, a pretty strong tenet of a lot of economic thinking yep and so it has a, the law of unintended consequences mm -hmm. and um and then because of the price regulation thing you know that has this really strong history in sort of conservative economics right you know, conservative economic economists especially back in the 50s and 60s that was just like the the number one thing that they thought of as like key that economists had to say, we could not be regulating prices. Right, right. So the minimum so, wage pisses them off when you, you know, as an example. Well, so was it controversial, the paper? I mean, it's in the AER, so everybody's, you know, reading it. So what was uh, the reaction? Well, <laughs> you see, growing up in Princeton, I guess, or whatever, I didn't really quite realize just how badly it was interpreted by people hmm. but partially okay so there was a couple of things that happened one thing was it was published in the AER, which was supposedly the premier journal yeah um another thing that happened was shortly thereafter i was awarded the clark prize oh and so that really ticked people off right right um because it put a big spotlight on the paper i bet yeah, and um, <laughs> I can remember. So the the person who had to read the uh, citation for the Clark Award for me was um, Ann Kruger, whose name is spelled like Alan Kruger's name, but she pronounces it Krieger, I think, uh, uh -huh. the, the German way. And um, she's a pretty conservative economist, and you could see it was just killing her to read. You wanted to skip that part. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, right. Right. You know, I, I, people forget. You know, economists these days are a little bit more uh, open-minded about markets, and, yeah. and and a little bit more, probably a little bit more left of center than they used to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so this was big deal, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know. Then maybe there was a bunch of um, people who really decided to make it into a, um, a bit of a campaign, like sure, Buchanan. sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. right. This diff and diff thing, you know, you mentioned. I actually didn't know about the California paper, and then the Mariel Boatlift paper. I didn't know about, and then all the work in the in the you know about it in the seventies and eighties and things. But I actually had kind of had the impression from stuff that you had written with Orly that you were a little lukewarm about the method a little bit, that it wasn't really probably, you know, always something that you would have found very credible. Is that is that accurate? Well, because, you know, in the original training program case, it did a, you don't have parallel trends. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so... 
um, it it wasn't something that you could just count on being able to apply out of the box. Right. So you were, um, so this idea of parallel trends from the very, very start, you were kind of like, you were thinking about it from the very, very beginning. It wasn't just diff and diff without it. You were y'all. You oh no, it's, it's right there in that 85 paper, the paper that introduces the term difference of differences. It basically, yeah. we, you know, we, unfortunately we didn't have a graph, but if you graph, you know, when I teach the paper, I show the graph and it's got yeah. very big dip for the treatment right. group. And that's the thing that everyone nowadays calls the Ashenfelter dip. Right. Then how come they don't call it the card dip? You feel well, like you've actually been identified in earlier Orly's earlier paper. Oh yeah. Okay. I was just yeah. Kidding. Yeah. And so and and so we kind of knew that the you couldn't use a straight up difference right. of differences thing. Right. Uh, right. And that's why we kind of invented this uh, selection correction difference of mm -hmm. differences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which no one has followed up. <laughs> no one likes that. <laughs> that was kind of a loser. <laughs> well, this like you know. Um, uh, I only have a few more minutes. I guess I got to skip something. I, I, I mean, I can go till three 30 if you want. I okay, know. good. I do actually want to do that. Yeah. So, um, so, um, this design stuff, this model versus design stuff, I, I can't get, you know, ever since I saw that speech, it just, I feel like I, I, it's really had a big effect on me. I, I guess you got to get over that Scott. No, I'm not ready for it. Maybe this will be. Maybe this will be the time. I'll bring it up with my therapist some tomorrow. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um. So, 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 explain to me what what you meant by this like model versus design approach, and you know when does it really start to diverge? Or like, because in the way that you talk, it's like this kind of like you know diverging path, but I I can't really quite tell exactly when it, when you start to notice it or when it starts to change um well I, I i became aware of and real quick could you this was for the thing. sake I mean, of I, the listener would you mind just saying real quick what i'm probably what, what what we're about to talk about this whole model versus design oh okay um so i I was asked to give the Wojtynski lecture at the University of Michigan um, in 2012 or something. Yep. And um, I I wrote a, did some slides and I never wrote the paper up, but I, I, I did some slides on that. And it was sort of called model-based versus design-based research. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I'd become aware of the issue in the 90s, um, sometime around 1994, um, there was a meeting of the Econometric Society in Iowa, and uh, in the, the summer meeting of the Econometric Society, and, and um, they organized up a meeting, and, and Richard Blundell and I were giving the talk, and they sort of wanted to have it be like I was sort of proposing the, it's sort of what nowadays a lot of people informally call the reduced form yeah, thing. Yeah, right. And and Richard was sort of presenting what you you might think of as a structural thing. Right. But I realized that that's not. And so, you know, I, I went and talked a little bit. And I mean, I know Richard from many years and get along with him fine. And I, I didn't think there was that much distance between us. Uh, he, he tends to have a more model based approach on things. And I tend to have a more design based approach on things. But I, you know, I certainly written model based papers, quite a few before, especially before the 90s. Yeah. And anyway, I started to think about, well, what what's really going on? 
Like why, what is, this reduced form and structure thing is not very informative. That's not what's really the fundamental question. The fundamental question is, do you think about it as I, uh, the, the approach that I have for research is to develop a model. Maybe I come up with a model in some ad hoc way, or maybe I'm thinking about a question and I say, I've got to have a model of how that works. And then I'll go and try and figure out whether that model, how that well fits or what are the key parameters in that model. Whereas the, the design-based thing says, I got a question, I want to answer it from a research design. I want to come up with a experiment or quasi-experiment or some kind of credible instrumental variable design that could, could potentially say how big is the effect of X on Y. Would that have sounded weird to people? I mean, now that seems so natural, but I mean, I'm saying, would Dr. Blundell have like been like, what are you talking about? What is that? What does that even mean? Was that, there's like a tradition of that kind of language or what's the, what I don't really quite see the, where, where this is coming from. Well, I think that was, I mean, everyone said, you know, oh, I, I once have pointed out that uh, sometime in the early nineties, Alan Kruger subscribed to the New England Journal yeah. of Medicine. Mm -hmm. And um the, the New England Journal of Medicine papers still the same today. There'd be a short abstract at the beginning of each paper, and it will say, you know, question research design. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you're just doing a regression, they call that an observational design. But that that labor con economists did not use that term, research design. design. Yeah, yeah that, that was a completely foreign term. Um, the only time I would have used it was in describing the X matrix in a regression. Sometimes that's called the design matrix. Uh, especially if you're trying to figure out what a statistician is doing, They'll, what they call the design matrix is just the, you know, the big X matrix. Mm. Um, but that's coming from, you know, Fisherian designs where you're setting up a allocation of treatment and control status to different plots or something. Right. So that's the origin of it. But um, so I think I, I don't know whether I invented it or I just grabbed it from somebody else, but it, it struck me as very fundamentally the, the way that some fields, like I would say even today, most of the time, labor economics is design-based, and mm -hmm. most of the time, I.O. is model-based. Yeah, yeah. But that wasn't complete. That wasn't the way it was in 1982. Like, because my one of my thesis advisors was Richard Quant, who was also the thesis advisor of Rob Porter and um, Tim Bresnahan, the two leaders of Empirical I.O. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who became. And so, and we all did the same thing. We fit maximum likelihood models to you know data and tried to. So there wasn't, there was sort of a divergence over the 90s or 80s, I mean, in the, in kind of the way we approach questions. Oh, what's uh, it originating with? I mean, is it, it's you guys, it's coming from Princeton? It's people like you and Kruger and Angerson guys like that? I guess you would say that that was certainly one force. I mean, the, on the other side, the, the models that people were needing were more and more complicated. Yeah. Um, and I guess you could say, um, for instance, uh, in macro, there's one tradition, which is like calibration tradition, which is like you have a model and then you get a few parameters and calibrate it. Yeah. Um, that would be, I guess, Ed Prescott was the guy who termed the, coined the phrase calibrated. Yeah. Calibration. And, but the alternative approach was like forecasting approach where you just have a VAR and just run regressions. Yeah. And you know, one time back in the 60s and 70s, they, those two things were kind of the same again, because 
the big macro models, they weren't exactly a VAR, they weren't unrestricted regressions, but they weren't exactly like a completely specified logical model. They were like equation by equation, there's a consumption function and an investment function and a government spending function. And, you know, people would specify that and they think of that as like, a, it was a sort of a structural model, but it's not a structural model in the sense that it had any, you know, sensible micro origins or anything. Right. Right. But, you know, so I think you could say at some time in the, in the 70s and 80s, these two things were kind of the same thing. That's what economists right. did. Yeah. And then they, the modeling became more formal on the model-based side. Yeah. More and more important. And um, the design base became more and more like, okay, we have a conjecture that some something causes something else. So we, it became much more focused on the whole issue of causality. That word, does it start getting, you remember it in grad school, people, people saying cause, cause, cause? Because, you know, it's like you can get an entire econometrics field and that word may not even, back in, you know, when I was in grad school, I don't think I heard the word one time. I mean, I just. No, uh, actually, there was a tradition in statistics that you weren't allowed to even talk about it. Yeah, right. And it was stupid tradition, actually. And they finally gotten rid of it. They started to have. In, in stats and then and in computer science are now have you know causal studies and causal designs yeah. and stuff they, they they that was a mistake on their part because actually that was what experiments were were supposed to fix right and right. i think it it might date back in stats to this tradition of um fisher versus um everybody else basically <laughs> yeah right, right. <laughs> i think he right. was kind of a difficult man to get along with yeah i heard but he basically he was a design guy. Uh -huh. There's no question about that. But, you know, right. he did invent maximum likelihood and, uh, you know, lots of other things, too. So he certainly was no slouch on how to do modeling, but he he was fundamentally a design guy. So you, so there's some point in the 90s, you're you're like, you kind of say, yeah, I think we're, I think something's, something's different. There's two tribes, whereas there used to be one tribe. Does that happen? Well, I, I, I wasn't, I, it wasn't like I pronounced that. It was pretty obvious. It was pretty uh, obvious to other oh, people. Oh, yeah. Too? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody at that time they all said structural and reduced form. And are we looking for a structural? Oh, that's when that language form? that was the out. language they used. Oh, I just I just thought that was not very informative. Yeah. Rather, it was like fundamentally is the is the is the paper being evaluated because it's got a clever research design, or is it right. being evaluated because it has an innovative model? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Right. Well, so, you know, how, I'm curious just to kind of go back to this minimum wage thing. I still don't quite understand. Was there hostility that you guys experienced? I mean, if you only read uh, Buchanan's very colorful op-ed, you would think you guys were getting bricks thrown through your window or something. Like, I mean, pretty it, close to that. Yeah, there really was. Can you tell me a oh, little bit about it that? It was pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, there was some. Um... Yeah, it was it was pretty awkward, uh, and uh, it was uh, very uh, like. Give me an anecdote. You don't have to name a name, but like. Um, I, <laughs> so, for whatever reason, the American Enterprise Institute decided they wanted to have a, a forum on minimum wages, uh -huh. and and so they had um, Finus Welch and Kevin Murphy come on the on the other side, and Alan Kruger and I come, and I remember um, this is like like late nineties. Or is this no, no, right this after, like right 95 after the paper? or something, 94, 95. Okay, so it's like the paper's like out. Yeah, just around the time the paper's been out. And, yeah. um, and we go down there and um, on the train and uh, they have this big forum and uh, 
there was a labor economist, an old time Australian labor economist who's still active named Bob Gregory. And Bob, Bob is a very interesting person. You know, like if you wanted to have your archetypical, what would happen if you crossed an Australian with a labor economist, you'd get this guy. <laughs> it's just really, but really entertaining, observant person, you know, very, and, and so Bob is there in the background. And, and, um, and so during the course of this discussion, it gets to be pretty heated. Finus Welch really got pissed off about this whole thing. Uh, wages. He just thought that that we were, he, I think, for, for at least for a long time, thought that we had faked the data or made something up. Huh. Um, but he, so he, why he is missed. he doing, I mean, Orly said amongst labor economists, it was not terribly controversial, but is that, he said, because the kinds of papers that have been being written were not so great. And so labor economists were like, you know, nobody knows. I think Orly might be there. I think among, you know, there were some labor economists who weren't so negative, but there was an ILR um, symposium uh, on our work. Uh huh. Um, that had a, a a review of our book, Myth and Measurement, and it has a chapter, it has a paper by Finus, and you could go read that. It's pretty, pretty scathingly negative. Huh. Huh. Um, anyway, during the course of this, you, you're uh, like, you're like 40. This is like, cause you said fifties. So it's like nice. So you're like, you're like, you're like in your early forties or like yeah. late thirties. Yeah. This, what did it feel? I mean, these guys were probably not just contemporaries. I mean, you probably looked up some of these guys, right? I mean, they were, no, they were the leader. Like Finus was considered a leader of the field. His, you know, he basically his company founded Stata. Yeah. So, I mean, what did it feel like to you and Dr. Kruger having so much kind of spiteful negativity that that wasn't very common? That kind of like you, you didn't have these kinds of throwdown matches, or I mean, you always hear not that I knew of in labor. That's the first time I'd ever heard of it. Um, uh. it so, in the course of this conference, a woman. Uh, economist come gets up and, and she was kind of more conservative side and said well i just don't understand how you can um you know be giving all this results it doesn't make any sense you've got to remember or you've got to say the theory is evidence too and the theory says very clearly mm. and so she you know the, this was a problem that she widely spread that it widely viewed that, that like somehow or other like theoretical ideas were you know in a certain way evidence rather evidence. than like Right, nothing to do with that. As opposed so, to being a uh, yeah. model or like, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So could uh, you have, Bob Gregory comes out of this meeting and just couldn't believe it. That's like almost this like metaphysical kind of conversation that's got nothing to do with the minimum wage though. Did you ever find exactly. yourself in these weird, weird conversations that were like, what is knowledge almost? Like what is All it? All the time. Mean? Really? What yeah. was that? What, that must've been very interesting. Well, yeah, I'm no philosopher uh, and I don't, we have a lot of i don't have much patience with it because i don't you know it's like there's a certain kind of person that loves to talk about stuff like that but right. it doesn't really go anywhere as far as i know um you know if you're a really clever writer you can but these were but this is kind of like an epistemological kind of shift a little bit because i was you know it's funny after i it's so ironic after i listen to your speech I went back to that James Buchanan quote, and then I went back to the lemur thing and then the Hendry deal. And then, all the, and then I thought about H. Greg Lewis just dropping all the IV. And I just thought, well, maybe Buchanan's just basically saying there's only theory. None of the empirical papers are ever reliable. So there's nothing special about this paper. 
they're all just garbage. Like that's what I was kind of wondering. Like, yeah, is there something? It's got nothing to do with the minimum wage. It's just this larger war about what do we, what anything? What are we doing with no, applied work? Yeah, and like, what yeah. is? Where does the knowledge come from? Well, one time when I was an ass prophet, Chicago, John Abowd was my colleague, and we were we would go to the seminars together and sit in the back row because you know we he was a PhD from Chicago, but he never. It didn't stick with him for some reason. Uh -huh. he, he was his advisor was Arnold Zellner, the Bayesian economist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't a true believer, and and and, and they, he walked out of the seminar. So well, once again, um, the theory has tested the data, and the data has been found lacking. <laughs> He's he said that. That's where that yeah. phrase comes from. Oh my gosh, that's famous. You heard him say that. Yeah. <laughs> that's clever. Yeah. That's yeah, so that 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 was, I mean, that was sort of widely. Um, that that yeah. wasn't just Chicago. That was a lot of places, and maybe even once in a while at Princeton. Or, you know, yeah. the theory was testing the data. Yeah, and the goal that that in a way, you know, that's kind of this. Um, you, there's this famous paper from Koopmans, which says theory ahead of measurement. Hmm. It's sort of related to that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I don't know. I, I've never quite understood it because I think in, in like in physics or something, people don't think like that. Right. Right. They think, okay, there's a million hypotheses and a smart guy can come up with a lot, a lot of hypotheses. Exactly. Yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, and so that's not the problem. The problem is trying to figure out which one's right. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. So boy, you know, you seem like such a, you know, kind of what's the right word, like laid back. So, and kind of steady and, you know, like, I, I, did you find yourself like kind of getting pissed off and just like getting into these, you know, kind of being like getting in, you know, getting mad during this kinds of stuff or was it, what it, what was um, it like? Or what was the, and I'm curious. I yeah. Many times. I mean, um, one time I gave a talk at Chicago, it was while I was working on the minimum wage book and, I, and they asked me to come and give a talk. And um, so I, I had written a chapter on the distributional effects of the minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And so I went and, and gave this talk. And, you know, I, I kind of reinvestigated that and found some evidence that the, the, the prevailing wisdom, the old fashioned wisdom was the minimum wage was a real disaster because if all it did was the people lost their jobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it actually, you know, totally counterproductive. Mm -hmm. And so I, I showed, showed some results that actually, you know, earnings went up rather than down when you raise them in low, low wage, people's earnings went up that, which is just saying that the elasticity labor demand is not, you know, bigger than one. Right. Right. Or if you interpret it neoclassically. Yeah. Um, and that, and I showed some preliminary, you know, some preliminary stuff on family structure and who were the types of workers that were working at the minimum wage. And it, it wasn't just kids and teenagers that were, you know, it was a larger and larger fraction of people who were, um, you know, supporting families. Yeah. And, Sherwin Rosen, who, you know, I'd known pretty well and, and, and right, he was really pissed off. He said, what's the agenda here? Oh, he said that. He challenged, yeah. he challenged he your motive. And I, I didn't really know what to say. So I, I guess it always struck me the other side was really angry and it, it's not very helpful. If one, if you're trying to have an argument and the other side is angry, you don't want to get angry yourself. That's not going to win. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, being accused of being bad faith is is very... It's, uh, it's very upsetting. Yeah. That's very upsetting. Yeah. That's very rude. Um, that's, that's very different from disagreeing with a paper. So taking it personal. Wow. How did Dr. Kruger take it? 
Were y'all pretty similar? Pretty persona? badly, I think, too. Yeah. I mean, we, we, it wasn't a great period of our lives. Huh. Wow. Actually, well, he was um, in the Department of Labor when the minimum wage book came out. Huh. And uh, then in, during, in 1996, I guess uh, the, there was a proposal to raise the minimum wage under Clinton, and he was pretty highly involved with that. Yeah. And one of the, con the congressmen from New Jersey basically like led some investigation against him because the Republicans had gained control of the House. Gosh. And they had a huge investigation of him and went through all his papers and financing and everything, you know, like his personal finances. I didn't know you could do that in the United States. Oh, my God. Luckily for Alan, his father was an accountant and Alan had the cleanest accounts in the entire Oh, my company. gosh. That is I mean, so infuriating to even hear. It was really that. scary. I mean, it was like you realize that and, you know, this kind of thing is happening all the time nowadays. Right. Right. Was, right. And see, but that was the first time I'd ever been aware that that happened in the u.s you know mm. canada that, i don't think that happens in canada so you guys were is is it you know there's like close friends and then there's like really good co-authors and they don't have to be the same thing what where were you and dr kruger on that spectrum i would say we were more of the very really good co-author than, than super close friends yeah i mean uh, I mean, we hung out and stuff, but we didn't have vacation together or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, okay. Well, what made y'all work together so well then? How'd you compliment each other? Um, hmm. Well, I guess um, I was a tiny bit more technical than him and he was a bit more like, um, you know, like his his natural instinct would be to go and do a survey or go and dig up some data or something. And so, you know, the two things together was a good combination. We weren't that far apart in terms of yeah. our orientation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it basically, uh, his, you know, he was from a, his father was an accountant and his mother was a teacher, but he wasn't from a rich family or anything. And he was, he sort of had the sympathy of, we shared the sort of, sort of same sympathy, which was we don't naturally think that. So I, here's something that I always tell people. There's a, many, many economists who they think the number one problem in the labor market is that wages are too high. There's so labor economists that, that wages are too high. You've got there's a labor economists that think that way. Labor economists that say the wages are too high. Wages, labor economists don't usually think that because labor oh, economists don't. usually think, you know, they're, they're sort of there's something naturally like we think. Labor, the, you know, everybody's working and they're we're on their side. That's <laughs> right, right. But yeah. the rest of the profession is sort of on the other side. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Uh, it you might know, be. that shared sensibility a little bit. Yeah, and um, you know, and um, so I, we kind of shared that sensibility. Um, yeah. we we're fairly similar in age. I'm only mm. four years older than him. Mm. Mm. So, so you leave. How come you end up leaving Princeton? Um, you go straight was, um, to Berkeley, or do you go somewhere else first? No, to Berkeley. My my wife was a um is a music historian, and she oh. was PhD from Princeton, um, and she got a job at Columbia, but she didn't get tenure. Okay. And so she wanted to move to California and switch careers, oh. and um, I wouldn't have done it without her, you know, wanting to do it. Yeah. Um, but it, I think it was in, in the end, it was a very good choice. Did you think about like Stanford or were they fighting for you over there? Oh, they didn't want to hire me. Um, there was a guy there, Tom McCurry was very strongly opposed to hiring me. Yeah. So you, Cause he heard you 
we're going to bring smoke into Stanford or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, he, uh, he, he, yeah, he just did. He, he really didn't like the minimum wage work either. Yeah, sure. Sure. Uh, you know, there's this really interesting quote. I, I usually pull it up, but I'm not gonna pull it up. It's by Shokley, who also won the Nobel Prize in physics, I think. He used to run Bell Labs. And he's got this like paper on, you know, basically how do you get to have what what what's what characterizes people that have like a gabillion citations and they get tons of grants. And it's all about these kind of right tail scientists. And he's got this really interesting part. And he basically lays out essentially a Cobb Douglas production function. He doesn't call it that, but he says, you know, there's like, for example, he, you know, there might be eight inputs and he kind of goes through and kind of describes these inputs as like, you know, there's like this logarithm thing in it, but it's like knowing when to find a good paper, knowing uh, or knowing how to recognize a good idea, knowing how to collect the data, knowing when to when you've worked on it enough being a good enough writer seeing it through uh to through the whole process and learning from the journal and all and all of these things and it was really kind of interesting reading it because it was a Cobb Douglas production function if you didn't have all eight of these inputs you could be phenomenal in seven you didn't have that eighth which was yeah eight. you wouldn't produce yeah so I was kind of curious you know you I know it's hard to, it seems like it's always hard to kind of figure out because it's all speculative when you wonder and go, well, what's my production function? But I'm just curious, like, what do you think the inputs are that you've had? And, you know, like, like, why are you so good? I don't even, you, I don't, I'm not asking you to tell me that you're smart. I'm saying like, why is it that you've been able to consistently do at a high level what are all the inputs that you think really matter and that you feel like you've really, you've, you've got, whether it was you or other people around you? Well, um, I, probably I'm a little more patient than most people. And so I, um, if I get some idea, I'll kind of play around with it and I um, will I, fundamentally, I, I often believe that almost anything can be made into a good paper if you're willing to work on it long enough and dig around and find out something. Mm. That isn't necessarily the way to write a paper fast, but it right. does. Um, and I, I'd like to, um, I like to interact with people and like find out what they're doing and seeing, you know, like how they're thinking about things and what problems they're confronting and stuff and that you know that's very important in economics these days especially mm. yeah almost nobody is writing papers by themselves anymore right 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 and, and when you get older that's even more important because you're stretched a little thin on uh, for time and so it's very helpful to interact with younger people and see what their you know problems they've got and what kind of things um they're working on Alan Manning kind of says we as you get older if you remain the only way to remain successful is vampirism you basically <laughs> <laughs> you basically grab ideas from other people and yeah you know if you're lucky they'll work with you long enough to get your name on the paper so right. that, that's there's some extent of that um, yeah. I I think I one thing that's probably true uh, is that I kind of 
think about things in a, you know the way from the point of view of the people on the bottom the ground up mm. so i'm i'm better at thinking about like really partial equilibrium things than on general equilibrium things and i so i don't try and worry about that other stuff i focus on like why is this person making this decision in this framework mm. and then whereas other people they they don't like think that they think that's kind of dull and they want to do all the general equilibrium stuff Wait, so why if, would that make you more productive that you're focusing on? Well, because like I don't that? I don't waste time on something I'm no good at. You're not getting distracted by stuff that's like you're not good at or something. That yeah, what that's mean? what I think is I, I tend not to, you know, so I I won't, you know, you'll see actually see this in especially among young people. They're like their math isn't very good or something. So they're they'll basically spend a huge amount of time trying to tech up. Right. Right. Rather than say, okay, let me just understand this to the level that I can use it, and mm. maybe, um, you know, maybe I can eventually figure out how to innovate on it. But I need to really, I don't need to be, you know, on top of every technical detail of everything or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I'm definitely not a control freak. So yeah. with co-authorship, that's that's definitely another thing. Like I'm perfectly willing to let other people do uh, lots of other stuff. Hmm. You know, this, this is, this is random, but this tyranny of the top five that Heckman talks about, it's funny, like being, you know, grow, being working now, I don't even have, have no idea if he, the way he sort of made it seem like it, it's newer, but I was just kind of curious. I mean, is it, I would just have thought it would always been that there were these, like, that there was this sheer gradient, you know, difference in all these top fives and stuff, but you've, you've gotten to see this evolution over your career. And I'm curious, you know, what, what exactly has changed with these journals that somebody like me wouldn't even be able to appreciate? Like, what would somebody from the past coming into now, would they be like, oh yeah, this is different. This, this wasn't how it was. Um, so my understanding was in my time, you know, I'm, I'm quite a bit younger than, than Jim. Um, so that's, I started writing papers in like 82 or something, but by then it was very clear. There was like the top five and mm -hmm. what was important for tenure was papers in, in, you know, those journals. And, uh, Maybe there was a little more recognition for papers in uh, second level journals. But another thing that's happened is the particular set of second level journals has turned around, whereas mm. the particular set of top fives is not. Right. So like so, what was the second set when you were in grad school? It wasn't like well, restat. restat would have been a second tier, um, but like the Journal of Economic Theory was really important. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That was, and it's kind of disappeared. Yeah. Um, Econom Economica. Yeah. That's that journal that um, Henry's paper's in. And mm -hmm. Orly and I have a paper on U.S. and Canadian unemployment rates in there. Richard Lipsy's famous paper on, the uh, Phillips's fam famous paper there in, in that journal. That that, that, that journal has, has fallen in rank quite a bit. Okay. I was just curious that, yeah, that, I just wondered, so you know, I would say like a different uh, era. Or to something. me, it's been the same. And my understanding, for instance, at Princeton, the committee that evaluates people for at the top level, the administrative committee has a list of journals for each field that are the ones that count. And mm -hmm. it's always been this five at, in economics. Mm -hmm. 
So Anger said something interesting one time. He said uh, he said he likes to ask grad students uh, if there was a paper that they wish they had written. And he said Bob Lalone's job marketing paper was a paper that he kind of wished that that could have been his paper or it's something like that. And I was kind of curious, are there papers that you just sort of so admire, you know, that you just think I would have loved to have been a part of that paper? Um, Is that even kind of a foreign way of thinking? I, I guess that is. I mean, there's some papers that I, so I like disruptive papers. Hmm. I, that to me, that's the most important thing is whether the paper is is the more disruptive, the better. And uh, recently there was an event at Princeton for the 100th anniversary of the IR section. And so I, I got a chance to sort of expound on this a little bit. And um, I was thinking about like, what are the really disruptive papers? I guess you'd say that minimum wage paper is fairly disruptive. Yeah. It, but it, what makes a disruptive paper is it's the time and the place and the question and the methodology, they all have to kind of be the right thing for that time and that, you know, that topic. Um, so I would say, you know, a lot of papers, I, I don't, one paper, I set of papers I really admire for their, their incredible disruption was the set of papers that uh, Otter, Dorn and Hansen have done on the effects of trade. Yeah. On communities and labor markets and social structures. I mean, that turned out to be, very influential um, mm. in the and super disruptive because when you it's sort say of disruptive. Said, what does disruptive mean? It means that it really gets everybody's attention. It really changes. It gets you literature. rethinking what you thought you knew. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you know there there had always been this discussion about trade and you know like there was winners and losers, but so you had that and then that was that was all you said. But no. No one really, and then there was a lot of um, discussion about like compensating the losers, but it was completely abstract, right? Right. No one really thought about how big the losses are. And of course, in, in the theoretical models, a lot of things are true that aren't true empirically. And and so David Otter and, and um, Gordon and, and David, there's two Davids and Gordon, their, their work really, you know, probably not entirely what they intended, but it's really caused people to really think about how um, when you take away the kind of economic well-being of a community, how it messes up the labor market, it messes up the community, it messes up the people that grow up there. You know, some people have shown that there's opioid epidemic is worse there, that the marital dissolution is worse there. People don't leave those communities nearly as much as you think. You know, So a lot of our thinking about the way these big, external forces impact individual communities is really heightened by that work. So I would say that's, that's definitely a paper that I, you know, if I had, would have thought of it, I would have thought that that was a really important thing to do. And I'm glad they did it. You know, that's funny though. You think about that, the, the, the fights you were having over the minimum wage, it, it also kind of almost seems like it was a group of people that did not like disruptive papers. Yeah, people don't like disruptive papers. They don't like it. They don't want papers. to change their mind. It's costly yeah. to change your mind. Yeah. So so it's sure. funny then. You aren't bothered as much by changing your mind, it seems like. Doesn't bother it doesn't upset you, or it's like you're not, you don't, it doesn't seem like there's as much at stake or something like that. Well, I think there isn't really, you know, it's not like we've got uh you know, quantum physics type models. 
that are right. we kind of think are probably right at least 97% of the time or something, right? We right. got nothing like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a lot of the things that we think we understand, they they maybe are only ephemeral in the sense that those institutions can change, you know, totally. like how much people uh, are stuck in a community versus are willing to move away. That really matters for understanding the impacts of something like, you know, minimum wages or trade or something. Yeah. But that could be very different in one society than another. Totally. Yep. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, so I, I don't think it's it, I don't think it's really possible to have a well same thing with like preferences about you know family how families organize themselves or something that seems like that some people want to take that as a, you know there's a there's a set of rules that govern that in all situations but I don't really think so right 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 yeah 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 well I have one last question uh, so you know if if you could go back in time to like your younger self at any time, either maybe during the minimum wage stuff or grad school, or even being like a young kid. And you could tell them, you know, about what's important in life that they probably at that time, you know, might, might've felt a lot of anxiety about your young self, or maybe just the uncertainty of it. What do you think you would tell them about life career that like, that really you think now, they really need to know that as a young person in the profession. You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't really know whether I, I have a good answer to that, Scott. I, I um, in all honesty, I, I feel like most of my career has been, you know, I've been incredibly lucky and um, you know, probably like being a labor economist in the 1980s, that was a very good fit for my personality and my skills. And and there was some opportunities to do things that wouldn't, that aren't as open today because you know so much work has already been done, and somebody has to go in a slightly different area. Um, but I don't, I don't know whether I could have told myself that that was going to be a good area to be in, or whether it was just luck, really. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I personally, for instance, I feel like if I was a young person today, I would probably tell myself to go into computer science. Oh, yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. I just, they are so burdened with, uh, you know, it, it, I admire the fact that you can kind of do pretty weird stuff in computer science and it'll be a contribution. Right, 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 right. Uh, so they're, they're, and they're, they're they, they love disruption. Right, right. So I admire that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. of them and i think we should try and work better in our field to get more of that like more appreciation of somebody if somebody comes in and, and says okay well we used to think this was all right it's completely different now that's great yeah. <laughs> even better yeah yeah well dr card this has been really fun for me and a real honor uh i've so enjoyed uh just getting to know you a little bit better it's our first time to talk so i was really really liked uh this talk well thank you i i have to, i was going to say I, I i really admire your book um and i had my students uh, you know the fact that you made it available and and uh you got all these you put a lot of work into that and it, i think it's really helped um popularize some of the some of these ideas that we've talked about a little bit and, and made it available to the masses in a way that it's really hard to figure out how to to get some of those ideas across 
if you're not in the classroom there teaching it. And I think you've made a big contribution there. Well, you know, I uh, was just, I, I enjoy telling people about you and the stuff that people in your cohort have done. It means a lot to me to get to get to write about it. And, you know, I, I loved, I've, I love writing and I love uh, sharing all this stuff with people. So it's been really, really a delight. So I'll maybe one of these days, all right. Uh, uh, the David card, the mixtape biography, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll come down and do this. Well, do this you know, um, I'm a, I'm a jazz guy. Jazz guy. Yeah. 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 I've, got, a question I've got here. I skipped my rules about this. I skipped my, all right, well, here was my, here was my jazz question that I asked Orly to and anger. So I, I heard that we'll end with this. I heard this, a journalist interviewed Dizzy Gillespie and he asked him, uh, why did he set out to make bebop jazz? And Gillespie said he didn't. He was just trying to make good music. And so oh. I look at your career and I see somebody who made bebop jazz, but everything I've read about you is consistent with that. It doesn't seem like you were ever trying to do anything but just make good music. So I was curious, you know, huh. what's, your, what's your response to that? Uh, Dizzy saying that. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, the thing I would say about him was he had, for many years, he had a great band and he brought in all these young people. Miles Davis did the same and um, several other, um, Art Blakey, they, they trained these young people um, that then, in some cases, went on and surpassed them. Mm. And, um, you know, like Blakey had Wayne Shorter in his band for many years or whatever. And so the, that's an important part of our profession, mm. uh, just like it is in music, that you basically have to um, and you can be, a, you can contribute really importantly at that level in that role. And even if you yourself aren't like getting the best gigs, yeah, <laughs> you can hope you can hope your your kids get the best gig. Right. And I think that if if everybody thought about it that way, it'd be more it'd be more um, uh, you know that would be good for the field. Yeah. Well, you've made some good music, and you made some, and you, you <laughs> seem to have made uh, also without meaning to made bebop. So uh, okay, well, <laughs> well, it's really nice talking. Nice to think I, that. I hope we know. run. Hope we run into each other. Okay, bye. All right, bye. you have a great day. Gotta see you soon. Honey, you need me, baby. I